Welcome to the More Beach Meetings podcast, where we explore the evolving nature of remote first and hybrid work. I'm your host, Dave Mastronardi. The More Beach Meetings podcast is brought to you by SurfOffice. SurfOffice empowers companies to bring culture, innovation, happiness, and productivity to their work and lives by organizing productive, authentic, and effortless company retreats. To learn more about SurfOffice and explore resources for planning your organization's next offsite, visit surfoffice.com. In today's episode of More Beach Meetings, we speak with David Daoud, head of people at DemoDesk. He shares with us how he approaches remote hiring and the three key characteristics he considers when doing so, his less is more approach to planning international offsites, and we learn what he believes will be the most important job skill for the next five years. Here's my chat with David, recorded Friday, August 5th, 2022. I was in Brooklyn, New York, and David was home in Belgium. Okay, so you're in Belgium, and you just got back from a vacation to the States. Our last conversation that we had was really insightful about the differences that you see between these two geographies. And before we get into the professional side of that answer, what kind of differences did you notice between the two places, You know, especially now that there's maybe been a pandemic when you just visited in the last time? So I was in the East Coast, I was on the East Coast, and uh, most of the time spent was in Florida. So I didn't see a difference pre or post pandemic there, to be fair. And from what I heard, neither did the people there during the pandemic. It was awesome. I mean, I think East Coast of all places in the US resemble Europe a little bit. I always get like a strange look from Americans when I say that. But like, uh, for example, South Carolina, just the Maryland, Virginia, like the greenish parts, they remind me of Europe a little bit. I think the US sometimes get like, it gets a, a bad rap because they, they you know, they're always perfect. Americans are always perfect in what they say. They're always very articulate. It's really thought out. But I think that's more like West Coast folks. I think East Coast is more genuine, more off the cuff. I enjoyed it, honestly. So we got three kids. We live in a, uh, a small village in Belgium. And we live in, you know, in a bubble here. We visit the same places each and every time. Everything is super safe. There's never a need to be worried. If you see your kid is about to swim in a lake where it says snakes and alligators could be present, that's the first time where you feel like a rush. You go to a 7-Eleven, you see some fights here and there at 3 a.m. Um, while you're holding your, you know, holding your baby. I think it was good to kind of be confronted with like real stuff, you know, adrenaline. My kid actually went to uh, the junior heat camp was one of the reasons why we went there. And he balled out. He had a great time. Met some famous people. That's like Miami, obviously. If you just compare the view of Miami to Belgium, obviously. Gets you depressed just being back. But no, it's been fun. It's been amazing. Did you do any work on the trip? Or was this a disconnected trip? I worked for a day and a half. I'd say a good 16 hours, but uh, it was primarily having fun being completely disconnected. It was well needed. Loved it. It was great. Going off that and some differences that do exist, maybe more so on the professional side than what you experience on your vacation. We were talking about some of the differences, especially as there is this big push to go remote, to tap into a global talent pool. There are some implications as to how you might do that depending on where you are. Does culture matter differently in different places? As this, as the pandemic has sent us all home and then this emergence of a rush for global talent and these companies like Oyster or Remote have come up, how have you viewed this or have you even approached it internally at work? I mean, we touched on it last time a little bit, you know, there are key differences. One thing I've learned after this trip, just getting back to that previous question, like culturally now I'm kind of more on the side of it depends where in the US you go to for there to be like a main difference. The one thing that really obviously changes is how you communicate with each other. It's such a big difference. It's really unfiltered in certain places in Europe to the point where you can get people off guard. You catch them off guard in terms of how you communicate and what you say. And it's not so much pre-processed in your mind is just thrown out there. You know, certain parts 
parts in the US where I felt like that feel like it was the case over there. But I don't see somebody that poaches gators, you know, in Carolina, all of a sudden working for a SaaS company. And I don't think that's going to happen any day soon. So typically you get people from New York or West Coast where the tech scene is or, or you know, Houston where the tech scene is a bit bigger. And there they do come up with a, I think they're all cultivated and brought up in this system where you need to be really careful what you say, how you say it, when you slack, how you slack. That creates a mismatch at times. I know companies when they expand to the US specifically, not so long ago, a few years ago, their main criteria was finding somebody. It was a Belgian company in the graphic SaaS space. something, And their main criteria, because they had or they were about to open an office in Chicago, something along those lines, was to find somebody who had experienced hiring and scaling in the US because they have felt that that was their main source of difficulty in terms of retaining people, really finding a cultural fit. Everybody interviews great. If you're European, I always say Americans have this pre, you know, they're born with the gift of being in front of a camera in being interviewed. It's crazy. It's like it's given in the womb. All the interviews are fantastic. I always tell a good story. And then it turns out that sometimes you do come across people that are, you know, as average as Europeans are. They're Americans. For us, that still has like a special feel to it. An American, you know, he must know everything. That company wanted yeah, somebody with the experience of understanding those differences. Because yeah, it is different. It primarily comes down to not having that specific key value, I think, where everything is like pre-processed in your mind before you explain yourself or before you act on certain decisions. It could feel a bit like sporadic and pragmatic to the point where it's uncomfortable. And I think those are the things that could frustrate somebody that's, for example, brought up in Silicon Valley. I guess there's the individual expectation or the individual presentation. And you're saying people interviewing well. There's also, and I want you to just take this and run with it because this is yours. It's not mine. But I thought it was really interesting when you talked about the difference between culture fit versus competency fit. In the States, you're expected, every company goes, forms, has the expectation of being the next big thing. And that's not so present in Europe. And so that impacts, would, do I hire for culture or do I hire for competency fit and the trade-offs that that implies? I'm going to nuance that a little bit. It's kind of what I said. What I was trying to explain is that, I'll give you the anecdote again, is that it's easy to identify in Europe or let's say small Belgium, if you're here in a company, it's easy to identify your top performers. And it's super easy to identify those that aren't performing. You fire those or you typically let those go that aren't performing. You know, hey, those that are performing well, it's easy to like you give them promotions. It's easy to keep them going. The question you always have to ask yourself is, and the main focus, a very senior HR lady always told me to run a business is to understand what you do with the remainder, you know, 90%. That's doing average to above average work. How do you keep them animated? How do you keep them in check and motivated? That's the thing. Those are, you know, the common folks, uh, so to speak. Here, there is at least, and that's another difference. Now, it's less so. But before, seniority mattered, like the number of years you worked at a company, because it had a impact to your status in terms of what you would be getting if you're let go. So Europe always, most countries in Europe had a lot of protection measures in terms of uh, employee status and whatever, you know, when you get dismissed, dismissal laws and such. And so you get paid handsomely, you know, deservedly so for many years served. Lately, that seniority and what you get for it isn't as heavy and doesn't place so much apart. It was quite common to have people that you know that would work 15 to 20 years in a company. It was sufficient for them to have a company where they were satisfied. As long as they could do their job adequate to okay and they're fine with the hours they were working for, that was good for them. That kind of resonates with me when I think of Europe. When I look at the US scene, it feels like there's always this fear of 
if I don't perform, I'm going to be let go. There is no, it's okay to be average. And either way around as well, if you're not going to pay me adequately, there is enough out there. That's true. There are a lot of tech companies. There are a lot of SaaS companies that have a chance of uh, becoming something special. And if you have American backers, or if you're surrounded by people that have been and done that before at numerous companies, that's more of a thing there. So it's more predominantly present. Europe, not so much so. It's getting better right now. I mean, obviously, the tech scene is much bigger now. But in past years, if you think about big tech companies in Europe, in Belgium, Germany, Spain specifically, you'd come up with five to six companies that really stand out. So if you work at one of those companies, that meant something. You're not automatically going to leave that for something else unless it's way more superior in terms of its standing. But it's not that common. So the seniority level, you know, in the terms of how many years you work at a certain place, that gets impacted because there's not as much out there. It was okay to be just performing at a adequate pace, let's say. That's a key difference that I've noticed as well. So does that impact the culture fit in a European hiring process versus a US? Does one place or another look more for culture and one look more for skills? I'd prefer somebody with a 70% skill fit and a 30% cultural fit as a mixed bag than somebody that's a 95% skill fit probably will produce results. But the other 5% you don't want to have anything to do with, that's not going to work. That won't work. I don't think it will work for any company, but I think especially here, that doesn't work. Because here, the getting together factor, doing stuff together, partying together, it's more elaborate from what I see. So I'm always careful with my choice of words, but from what I see, that's more elaborate here, going to parties, getting drunk together. So hanging out, is important. When I'm in HR and I draw out the personas of um, the type of people that I want to look for from a talent acquisition point of view, I always add cultural elements to them because it's super important. And I kind of try to seek it out during an interview process. Are these people that are comfortable with all of a sudden at parties, somebody maybe, it's not questions I literally ask, but if you're uncomfortable seeing somebody get sick in front of you at a party, you're probably not going to do well here because, you know, we party every week as opposed to other companies where if it's a bit more stuck up, that's not really a problem. You just doing your job and handing out home, I'm less worried about how are you going to mix or blend between the rest of the staff. So that's a key thing. It's that vibe. Do you fit the vibe? Do you fit the lifestyle? Are you about that life that we represent? And it's different in every company. A couple of weeks ago, I had an interview. The person that was co-interviewing was actually somebody new to talent acquisition. He was kind of in a learning curve. We were like asking questions back and forth, obviously. And it was funny how he penned down the answers, you know, word for word, looked at the criteria. Kind of that's how we processed it. He's like, great, this is like a perfect fit. And I read more into the details because obviously he was experienced. And I was like, no, this is like no cultural fit. When I asked, what do you do after work? What are your other hobbies? What are your passion? It was somebody that literally just wanted to work from home, stay there forever. And for that specific job, that wouldn't work. So that doesn't make that person bad or unskilled. Maybe a high performer in another company, but the company that we represent at this stage, it wouldn't have worked. That simple in that team. How people behave for me is still, and who they are is still important. And I do it not only to make the right decisions for the company, but also for them. I think it's useless to hire somebody if you know they're going to be miserable. If they're going to have that social pressure of hanging out, and if they don't hang out with other team members, they feel like they're left out. I've had that before. I've seen that before. People saying, I feel like pressure to come everywhere. I don't want to go. Well, that's a bad culture fit. You shouldn't feel that pressure. Neither should we feel like we're pressuring you to get you over here because we think it's important. I think that that more than in any other place, I stands out here in Europe. Like I never, when I talk to colleagues in the States, it seems to be less of an issue. They're a bit ahead of the curve in terms of remote first setup and all that type of stuff. 
I think what you're saying is that there is a downside to this if there's not going to be a fit. And I think that sounds like it plays into this example that you're giving where your junior colleague seems like they took a notepad long list of all of the skills and all of the reasons why from like a hygienic or from a skill standpoint reason that this person can do the job. And that seems to be the approach if you're going to hire into a global talent pool, you're only ever going to be on Zoom with this person. That sounds like the same situation. The people that you're going to be interviewing and hiring, yeah, they might be 10, 12 time zones away, but are they going to fit? Exactly. There's something I always tell people, especially like I'm not really bothered about moments when things are going well for a company or a team is performing. Everybody's happy when, you know, everything's happy. Your kids are acting normal. It's a, the sun is shining. You had a good day. Everybody's closing their deals. It's easy to get a good vibe going then. I'm always looking at the scenario of what if shit hits the fan and things get awkward and maybe there are discussions and people are getting a bit too personal with their comments or whatever. It is so much easier to put up with bullshit if you know somebody. I'm not going to put up with bullshit if I don't know you. You have these moments in life, right? Where somebody, for example, skips the line and stands in front of you in the line in the store and you're about to say something and that person that turns around and it's your next door neighbor, like, okay, okay, all fine. You know that person, you're not as offended. But if that person is a stranger to you, you probably say something to them and take offense. Maybe that's a bad analogy, but I hope you know what I mean in terms of the more you get to know each other, the more there's space and occasions for you to be more connected, the more you're able to put up with bad stuff or bad vibes, because those will come about. No company goes through growth without its challenges. No team gets successful without hitting a few bumps along the way. So that for me is, is super important. I always try to figure that one out. I don't know how that works. How distributed is your team or when you hire? Do you put limits on that? I'd say that depending on the team, it's advised, I'll put it that way, to have them in the same location for other teams like marketing, for example, I think. There, we're fine having distributed teams. You know, their skill is so hard to get everyone wants a great growth marketer, for example, or a great CMO. You're fine with going outside. And I think as of a certain years of seniority, like our VP revenue is a really experienced lady. Like she's done the whole let's party every week thing. Like she's done it. She's able to handle not being a part of it and be able and she's able to connect in a shorter time frame with her people. You could just see it. So that's fine. But if you're hiring a junior salesperson, you know, let's say you're hiring a junior SDR. How is that going to like, I always try to tell people like picture you being in a position of that as you start, you're going through the motion of things. Yeah, you got your Slack coffees or whatever. Every now and again, you meet the people during an offsite like once a year. If you got two quarters coming out that pass you by where you didn't perform and you get told off by your manager. And at the same time, you're getting 20 LinkedIn messages a week about other SDR roles. You're a risk of leaving. I don't care what you say. You're going to look at those messages. If you pass two quarters and you're not doing well, but you know the person so well because you work with them, you sit with them at least once, twice a week, and you're so connected, you might still feel that pressure, but you're able to have that human connection where you're able to see through that fog a little bit more. When you're a large corporation, that doesn't really hold true as much. You know, if you're Google, great. You can be remote first. Because if I start at Google tomorrow, trust me, that I won't impact its future. Might impact the unit I'm hired for, but I'm sure I'll be replaceable. But if I'm, you know, remotely distributed, it won't be as much of a risk factor as if we started a company tomorrow together. Let's say that we started a, a company in, I don't know, sports apparel or something, you know, whatever. 
it'd be interesting if we would see each other more often, right? To kind of get to know each other a bit better. And if we hire people, we'd probably not want somebody in, I don't know, New Zealand. If that means we're only online with them three hours a day and um, we don't get to know them outside of that one week a year, we see them. So I think that's just so evident. And the thing that annoys me is, is tribalized this whole topic. Like you have to be remote first or not. And you have these stupid polls on LinkedIn. What's the ideal setup? Well, the ideal setup is whatever works for you best. Like if you want to work remote first, find yourself companies that remote works. If you feel like you want to work in a hybrid fashion, look for jobs that are in a hybrid fashion. At Demodesk, we've solved that by saying you could be whatever you want to be. You want to be remote first? Fine. That's available in those teams. You want to be hybrid? Great. That's what we always do. You want to be in the office every day? The office is there. Feel free to jump in whenever you like. So I think having all the options on the table is the best thing. And I don't think there's like a wrong answer to it. I don't know why you have to be one way or the other. It's kind of feels like this uh, wokeness has traveled over to the work sphere and touched on on that topic. Yeah, it's very polarizing. I think I saw a Malcolm Gladwell interview just recently, and he was making a push in the 45 second clip that I saw. So we'll just keep that for context. He was essentially saying, if I'm a company, I think he was taking the standpoint of the business owner and saying, well, if you're not in the office, how can you feel a part of anything? If you're sitting in your bedroom in your pajamas, or do you really feel like you are a part of something? I suppose is important at the same time, maybe you do, maybe you can, but also maybe you're not looking for the same thing. And to your point, some companies want somebody who are going to feel part of the culture and feel the vibe. And other companies just want that really hard to find growth marketer who is going to knock out blog posts and YouTube videos. I get the point he's making. I think it also depends, just to say sit at home in your pajamas. I think how old the pajamas are really makes a difference. If you're like a plus mid 30 and you have a couple of kids and you need the time anyway to kind of sort out your life, I think that's been a big benefit of the post-COVID era where you don't need to be embarrassed to ask that type of flexibility regardless of where you live, that you can kind of expect that to be there. But I also think like seniority allows you to put in, like I can feel connected and only go visit the office once a month. But I wouldn't have been able to do that like 10 years ago. No way. I'd feel so disconnected. I get his point, but I think it depends on seniority when it comes to that. Like I'm trying to envision what it must feel like. So now the company like Demodest, to reference Demodest, Demodest is like 50 people big. You know everybody, you know, in my case, I reported to the CEO, but you know the company fairly well. It's small-ish, obviously scaling, but small-ish right now. But if I work for a gigantic corporation and I'm like a continent away working from home in my pajamas, I'd be worried about my job security every month, especially among months where I don't do well. That's the point. I don't see how you can get high performance out of it. I think what you're able to produce are average performers. That's the thing that I don't get, honestly. I don't get the pushback on that narrative. Like white people don't accept that, that that is a risk for sure. And every company has to sort out for themselves if that's a risk they're willing to take. Some of the things that it sounds like makes for this more remote first culture is skills. So if you're looking to hire somebody who has a very rare or in-demand skill set, you're going to have to broaden your scope and you're going to have to consider seniority. The more senior, the more experience a person has, the easier it is for them to be away, to be remote. Size of company, it sounds like there's both sides to it, but it sounds like with a bigger company, it's easier for you to be remote than a smaller company to have a remote workforce. And then even uh, maybe maturity level, say the stage of a company, an earlier stage company, it's better for everybody to be together. A later stage company, it's easier to be a part. It's evident. You pen this down as if I think everybody knows that deep down. I think if you started, let's say we started a tech company to reference a previous example. Let's say we need our very first engineer. It's just the two of us. Would you want that person as confident that person may be in Poland? Let's say you and both of us are based in the US. Or would you want that person 10 minutes away from us? If you had the choice, what would you choose? Very first engineer. 
I would go move to wherever they were for a year or so, just so we could all be together and establish the base that would then allow us to maybe be remote. That's my point, right? So you would opt for the person close. Everybody would, because it's easier to cut through the BS when you're having conversations. I think at some point, as you said, a year down the road, then you're able to do it differently. I think it's self-evident. I just think that people, you know, deep down know these things. I just think they need to be confronted with those situations to get to that point. Yeah, that makes for an interesting future, right? Because if everybody's hiring remote first, honestly, I know what salaries I should be expected to pay anymore in certain countries. Prior to the pandemic, somebody in, I referenced Poland, you know, no, let's take that again, costs like a third of somebody in France. Now it's 70% to a salary in France, so to speak, you know, just to give a silly example. And as a result, salaries everywhere are getting like ticked up a notch, which I don't think is bad. But it just then we're going to come to the saturation point, I think, where people that hired in the Philippines, for example, because of cost reasons, we're going to ask them questions. Is this still worth the hassle to have legal entities open everywhere? Maybe not, because in the end, we're paying kind of the same. That's making it very interesting. Maybe that's very far down the line. That's going to mess up a lot of business plans. Let me tell you, the world still exists where you have RPO, where you have um, call centers outsourced wherever, Asia or India, because they cost you way less than they would here. You need them in bunches. And so you still have that offshore type thing going on. So you mentioned a couple of times offsites. What's your approach to offsites? How often do you do them? Are they optional? Are they mandatory? Is it all hands? Is it small teams? How do you think about getting everybody together? Whereas the first time, actually, I fully like took ownership of that together with a colleague. Offsites for me is a, a yearly thing. I think I believe a lot in the concept of combining on-sites where you have quarterly events locally, your HQ and everybody could fly in and celebrate. I think that's super important. I think offsite is where you literally take everybody away from their habitats, so to speak. So everybody feels like going away and having fun. I think that at the minimum, you know, you should do yearly. I think everybody does that yearly. I think that makes sense. All hands is different. That's just, you know, internal meetings when you get everybody together and align on a couple of things or give a company update. Offsites are obviously increasingly important because we are living in a world where not everybody's at the same location. So you don't do a lot of spontaneous things. So, But I think anyway, throwing an event away and putting people together in places where they're not, you know, 100% comfortable and they need to connect to get to know each other. I think that's always an interesting exercise. That's where you really feel like, okay, we did our offsite recently. You could see like, okay, we did a good job in terms of mixing and matching different cultural differences and personalities that worked out. And you only see that at an offsite. Do you try to get work done or do you try to limit the work? Is it more social in, in bonding and team building? So I had this debate uh, two months ago, actually. I think the less you organize, the better. I feel like sometimes offsites are like, do you remember going on playdates as a kid? I remember the ones that I hate was where, you know, typically it was a single parent plus them would be overly involved in what you do. We're going to play, you know, kid scrabble right now. And then in half an hour, it's pee time. You're going to go take a piss in 30 minutes. And then we're going to do this or that. It's like, I'm not coming back here. The best places where you have playdates is where the mom would literally step out and say, just don't burn the house down and you can do whatever you want. And I think that same thing applies to any offsites or team events that you organize. Sure, you need to obviously, it's still a business. So you need to align on what are the goals and try trigger how to animate individuals, give out awards, all of that is important. Doing workshops and stuff like that's not to me, unless a workshop is about 
how do we produce internal value a bit better? You know, if you feel like there are certain things that we need to flush out that are issues that resurface a couple of times during surveys or whatever, I think you can use that occasion to kind of do a workshop here or there. But uh, other than that, instead of, it should all be fun activities. And you should plan a couple. When my kid invites, or one of my kids invites friends over, I'm always like, here's a Nintendo, here's a TV, there's a trampoline outside, there's a basketball court, here's a ball, a couple of boxes with toys, you know, do whatever you want to do. Just try not to burn the house down. That same thing, I apply to adults. Here's the booze. There's a DJ coming. Try not to go overboard to the point where you're sick tomorrow and missing your flight and have fun. That's the best way to organize any event. The company where I saw that specifically was a company prior to Demodesk where I was at, where the founders really found the ideal way of animating employees and specifically having like a culture where people want to be in the office and want to come together. It's by literally having like an adult version of a playground where you've got a bar that you can, where it's customary or where, you know, typically agree to that you can take a beer out as a 4 p.m. where there's a grill outside on a balcony or where there's, you know, speakers. So if you want to play music, all good, where there's a pool table, where there's, you know, this and that. But the rest of it outside of organized parties aren't organized. So it's all off the cuff, spontaneous, and you can use whatever is there at your own, at your own will and the fridge will get ready. So it's kind of like you have this extension of a bar and as a result, extension of a social life connected to the office in a way. So that same premise for me, transfers over to the offside in a way where you got to have, you got to create that same feel where here are the toys, go have fun. So that's how I look at it personally, but not everybody does. I've uncovered that. I'm finding there's more and more of this. I don't know how to the degree in which it's freeform, but there's certainly seems to be a reduction in the emphasis on work. Like this is not about work. It's about being social. Where did you do your offsite? We did it in Ericeira in Lisbon. So we used Surf Office as an agency, which was great because they kind of felt the need for them to be quite proactive. And they were. We just told them where we wanted to go, what theme we wanted, and they kind of went with it. And as a result, that played a lot into that premise of don't plan too much. Just take a feel for what we need. In our case, we don't need too much planning and we'll go with it. Just make sure that everything is set up and ready and give us all the options on the table and we'll pick and choose close to the date and we'll just go for it. And so that worked out well. We went to Aracera. So that's a city close to like a surf city, surf town close to Lisbon. And um, yeah, two amazing nights. Fun to see. What do we specifically do? Well, outside of beach volleyball, I honestly, and a couple of games we played, wasn't a lot of things that were really organized. And I know a couple of people up front were like, isn't that, shouldn't we organize something else? And should we do this? How do we fill up this hour? And how do we fill up that hour? And should we fill up that hour for teams to get together and work? Or like, no, that defeats the purpose. I can imagine getting the feeling like, wait, we're on an offsite and this is like a ploy for us to work together in an office just in a sunny location. That's not what you want out of your offsite. Like to feel like you were tricked into going to the office in sunny Lisbon. So that's definitely not what, what we were going for. But I do notice that. Your goal is for people to feel like that they should have taken a vacation day in order to do what they did. How did you decide that you needed help or you needed a partner in planning this versus doing it all on your own? There's just so many things that could go wrong from a travel point of view to booking a restaurant. If you're not from there, I mean, if you don't have the right connections, like we wanted a Hawaiian aloha theme party. Can you imagine the time it would have taken, the money would have cost if we sent somebody up front to kind of organize and set up the whole thing. And all I needed to say was get us a place at the beach and we want to do an aloha theme. And we're like, we're on it. That's what an agency does. At least in this case, 
agents. That's what a good agency does. So that makes a big difference as opposed to having to plan everything out in detail. It takes away all the worry and you can focus on content, making sure like the main emphasis for me were how do we animate people when they arrive because they come in at different time frames obviously what we did but beginning alone that's a big challenge to get everybody somewhat at the same time there and making sure that the scenery is set out in motion where everybody if you come too early you still feel like you're doing stuff and if you come later it doesn't feel like you missed out on something right and that's where the planning of an agency really allows you to kind of focus on that moment. So um, it's been key. Yeah, it's been a main reason, obviously, just consolidating. How do we animate people when they arrive? That's really thoughtful. Animate people when they arrive, and more importantly, how do you feel like, I think the main thing for me is how to give people a space where they are free to connect with others without having any rules around it in a way, you know, like, okay, this is where we are right now. There's music playing, there are drinks. The next day we're going to leave. At some point, everybody has a different hour where they leave to because we all, most of it are distributed. So we're taking different flights. And this is the location we'll end up in for those who are staying longer. That's it. And so you're giving them this flexibility of having to talk to one another and kind of start thinking about what should we do? Should we go shopping? Should we have a coffee? You know, should we discuss that thing that we had a heated argument about? You know, so you're giving them space to kind of explore themselves, what to do. And I think that kind of unlocks a lot of positive impulses as opposed to getting into the nitty gritty and saying, okay, at this time we go to that place and we need to stay there and we're going to do another workshop before we depart. A lot of people come up with those ideas. How do we fill out? I don't think you need to fill out anything. I think you need to trust personalities to be able to figure it out themselves and it'll be more fun for them. That for me, those two moments are key, like entrance and departure. Yeah, for sure. I've got two more questions for you. The first, what piece of advice would you give a company looking to make the most of the global talent pool, you know, and do this, I want to hire anywhere. If they're about to approach this decision, would you tell them? At least consider one thing. So there are a couple of things to consider, but at least like hire anywhere. I think it's important to have tiers. Like, you know, we touched on it previously, depending on the skill set, somebody's super unique. Maybe it is worth letting go of an old fashioned approach of having somebody close to you. But I think you always have to consider then another tier, which is do you need them in the same time zone? think is something that's understated. What if disaster strikes at 8, 8 p.m. your time? Like that might be nighttime for that person, but you really need that person. So you're not going to reach out to them. So I think depending on the stage of the company and the sensitivity of the role, that's something you need to just be aware of. And I think you need to be comfortable in making bold decisions there. If you don't feel like it works for you, just don't do it. You'd be better off just being really outspoken on what you want out of your future employees. If that's being in the office three days a week, if you're bold about it and just stay that you'll find people that want that too. There are people that want that. If you have companies that say, no, we want to be remote first because from a business concept, it makes sense for us. Plus from an operational standpoint, we like the idea of not having to pay for an office and all that type of stuff. Also could make sense. You should be bold about that too. And you'll find then you'll attract people. So my advice is be bold about how you feel your business is positioned, but understand that the market pool, so here is where the kicker is. Understand that the market has changed to a point where you're not only competing with companies in your country, but you're competing with countries outside your country because of remotes and the oysters of the world and their way of enabling companies to hire without the need of you having a legal entity, which in the past was also a thing, but it wasn't as accessible. You literally had to visit an on-site consulting company and kind of get them to go along with your plan. And then it evolved into having employer of records everywhere. But now it's so easy. Honestly, when I look at the competition for our company in terms of hiring, it could be anybody in anywhere. And that's unique unto itself. That's never been as much as it is right now. And I think that's the interesting 
way where the marketplace is going ahead, where your competition isn't just locally, isn't just in your time zone, it's everywhere. So my advice would be stick what's to what's best to you, because you should never base it on, you know, what's the best phrasing for us to find people. Like I've met business owners that say, oh, we should say we're remote first, but secretly they want people in the office. And once they get them in, they kind of like try to tantalize, you know, make it interesting for them to come to the office. That doesn't work. No, be bold about what you were looking for. Understand the landscape. You've got competition everywhere. And finally, I think that's the, the most important thing of all. Make sure that there's workplace transparency, whether that's Glass or any other place, like make sure that you're able to showcase who you are for better or for worse on numerous platforms. So those are the three things I always like point to. And lastly, what's the most important job skill for the next five years? Anything in the entertainment business. I 100% believe that. Be in entertainment. Is that not the answer you're looking for? I want to know. I really feel like the most emerging skill is going to be entertainment, honestly. If you're smart, I'm not that smart. I was going to say you can teach anybody to code. That's not true. You couldn't teach me. I'm not smart enough. But you could teach a lot of people to code, especially you could automate certain machines to do certain things. We're every day. I checked in my flight in Washington in a way I haven't checked in yet. It was so advanced. Just to give you an example, outside of the K9 that was sniffing the bags uh, rather than having security. That's a different story. But a lot of things get automated. A lot of industries or job trees or families, as I call them, are taking the next step in going more digital. And so I feel the thing that you don't, that you are unable to kind of teach is a gift of gab and the entertainment industry. And I think anything from athletics to being a good podcast host, to um, being entertaining, unfortunately, influencing platforms, social media platforms is probably the way you sell yourself. It's probably going to be the most important skill set. Let me put it that way. So the way you sell yourself, how presentable you are, it's probably the most important skill set anybody could have at this stage. I feel like all the rest of it, in my point of view, this is going to sound silly, but I read, I should look up the article again, and it was about emerging markets. And they draw an example in sports, for example, they were looking at basketball. The amount of leagues that are being created right now and the money behind those leagues is enormous. Numerous countries now have different types of venture-backed leagues that are created. And so if you're a professional basketball player, back in the day, it was either you play for your country, you try for the NBA, which never works, and you play for your country and that's about it. Or you go to China or you go, now there are emerging markets everywhere. It's the same in every sport where they're like investing, creating new things to entertain people. And so that article was suggesting that there would be way more jobs in the entertainment and athletic space than ever before. So anything related to that, whether it's being a producer or being a coach or being gifted in or being specialized in analytics with regards to you know sports performance and what. So I think anything in that industry skill set in that industry is really important. Next to that, obviously, the way we sell, like if you start your business today, you're probably going to launch it. If it's, for example, a B2C product, you're probably launching it on TikTok and Instagram before you're thinking about launching a website. That's weird in it to itself. Like that's new. If you're thinking about selling clothing, you're probably thinking about launching an Instagram page. So what do you need? You need like basic marketing skills. You need to be comfortable in your own skin and posting things on social media and being open to comments and all that type of thing. I don't know if that's something you teach. I think that's something you're born with to a degree or that you're brought up with in a way. And those two things for me are crucial. Yeah. And I think where I initially, when you said entertainment, I initially went to the entertainment industry is what you're saying. Like that's where to go with your sport example. And I see this, whether they're athletes or in the actual entertainment industry, people are getting parts. People are getting sport contracts to be on part of these teams. If they have a high degree of presence, we'll say in the micro entertainment world of TikTok, of Instagram, of YouTube, if you have a large Twitter following, I've seen runners get picked up because 
people are going to generate interest for the sponsoring shoe company. If this person, they might not have the fastest times, they might not have the most medals, but they've got the biggest Twitter and YouTube following. So I'm going to get them on the team. Right. It's like a micro example of what happened to Jake Paul, right? It's, it's happening all over the place. And so I know this girl as well, who is a mediocre gym performer at best. She's got the right clothing that is apparently sponsoring her. And as and she her clips or video clips are good from a gym perspective. But I'm just meaning she's not the hardest working gym goer or gym rat, or she doesn't lift the heart, the weight she lifts in comparison to others isn't as impressive. But because she has the right content, she has a lot of following, and she's earning her money. She's probably earning more than, I don't know, a full-time accountant at Deloitte once they graduate, while she is still going through college, her college years. And so that's insane. That's something that has completely changed. So what is that job skill set? You tell me. For me, that's being presentable and understanding, being bold, knowing what's entertaining. I know for a fact that person didn't follow a course on how to market a specific brand. David, thank you. That was a great conversation. Really appreciate it. And Hopefully, we see you back on here next time. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope I did okay. Thanks for listening to our interview with David. If you'd like to review the show notes of this or any other More Beach Meetings episode, head over to surfoffice.com slash podcast. If you like this podcast, we ask you consider subscribing, sending to a friend, or writing a review. Until next time, see you on the beach.